0: 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to start at verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God.
1: Is there a scene... In your favorite book or film that you dread? Is there a moment when uh, one of your favorite characters says or does something and it just makes you cringe, leaves you feeling, oh, of all the things you could have said, but you love the film so much, or the book so much, that you're not going to throw it out? Anybody relate to any of this? It's Anna Green Gables in our house. When she gets Diana drunk, but that's another story. Uh, well, that may be how some of you feel about this section of First Corinthians. If you've joined us recently, we've worked through the book and seen three big sections of this letter already. Uh, chapters 1 to 4, Paul has taught us about leadership and division in the church we learned about sex and litigation in chapters 5 to 7. We've just finished looking at food, sacrificed to idols in chapters 8 to 10. And now we get to the fourth big section of the book, which is all about how we worship God together. How do we do that well? In lots of ways, look at verse 2. Uh, the church in Corinth are doing a good job of that. They're doing what Paul taught them. They're living out the gospel in all the areas of their life but there's three key areas where there are significant problems how they worship together as men and women how they worship the lord's supper and how they exercise their spiritual gifts in a way that is loving and helpful and all of those issues were undermining the gospel which is why Paul is going to start for the next four chapters, focusing in on them beginning tonight. But for some people, this is a section of 1 Corinthians that they dread. Some of that is because of the cultural pressures in our day. We live at a time, I'm not going to say that is the worst it has ever been, because there's a lot of years that I haven't been around for, but we live in a time when saying that there are distinctions between men and women is not something our culture is willing to tolerate. And not only not tolerate, but there is an active agenda to force everyone to accept our culture's way of thinking that there are no differences between men and women. So there's cultural pressures, which mean that It's not that we're necessarily shy to stand upon God's word, though sometimes that's a factor. The reason that we can sometimes feel a little unsure about passages like this is we're not exactly sure where to take a a firm stand. And we want to be clear so that the only obstacle and barrier that people are finding in their Bibles is to the gospel itself and not our misunderstanding of things. That's cultural issues. On top of the cultural issues, there's just a lot of hard theology in this passage. So what is it in verse 3 that Paul means by head? What were men and women doing with their hair or their head coverings? And what have the angels got to do with any of this? It's just a hard section on in God's words. So before we get into all of that detail, I just want to state the obvious, which is that this, as with all scripture, is for our good. Even if it's hard for understand, this is not a section of God's word that we should dread or wish that Paul hadn't included. This was written under the inspiration of the Spirit so that all believers since Paul wrote it until now, and including you and me in 21st century Britain with all of the challenges that we face, is written for the good of all believers. Whether you're a man or a woman, However much pressure you're feeling from these kinds of subjects, this is a good word for us. And here's the big idea of this good word God has made men and women differently, and we must honor those differences when we worship Him together. That's the big idea. And Paul's really clear about what the differences are not. The differences between men and women don't mean that women are inferior or unequal. It can't possibly mean that because of what we're going to see about Jesus and the Godhead. Neither do those differences mean that men don't need women in life or in anything else. We're going to see that men and women are completely interdependent. So that's not an issue. And neither do the differences mean that women can't worship with men. The whole focus of this passage is not what women can do, but how women can serve and worship alongside men in a way that is right and godly. And as we'll see at the end, the differences in the way that we show who we are as men and women change in different contexts. So Paul told the Corinthians how to live out the differences in his day And our challenge is to live out those unchanging differences in ways that are understood and appropriate in our context. That's what I hope we're going to see. I know it's hot, but I also know there's a lot in this text. And it's a hard text to split in two. So we're just going to go for it. And God willing, by the end of this evening, you will know the three theological foundations... That Paul gives us for understanding these differences and the principles for how we then live them out in everyday life. Number one, firstly, we need to honor God's appointed headship. Look back at verse three. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That raises a lot of questions doesn't it? Let's start with perhaps the biggest one. What does Paul mean when he says head and headship? There's been all sorts of debate about that over the last few decades. Um, we can't get into all the academic discussion, but I think it would help us to have a handle on some of it so that we know what is being said here. I think I'm right in saying that Stephen B. Dale was the first person to suggest back in, in the 1950s, that when Paul talks about head here, he means source. So perhaps the easiest way to think of that is, when he's talking about the head of a river, he means its source, where it all comes from. So in the context of a marriage, for instance, um, the idea would therefore be that a husband is the source, the provider in some sense for his wife, but there's there's no sense of authority involved in what's being said there. And there are a couple of passages in the New Testament where where the Greek word, which is kephale, could perhaps be understood in that way. Um, So if you want to go home and look at Ephesians 4.15 and Colossians 2.19, I think they're perhaps the closest examples that you could see that interpretation. The key question is, is that what Paul means here? None of the major Greek dictionaries include source as a metaphorical meaning meaning head, Um, so we need to be really clear that there's a reason in the text, in this context, for thinking that's what Paul means here, and that's even more the case when if you look at verses 11 and 12, Paul is really clear that men aren't the source of women because men come from women, meaning their mums, so is there anything in our context that we've been looking at over the last few weeks that would help us understand what is Paul referring to when he uses this word I think if we go back into chapter 10 what have we seen God's headship his authority over all things means that we can eat food sacrificed to idols without any fear of conscience or that the food is contaminated outside of the temple and all the things we've thought about because he is the one who has authority over all things You go back a little bit further, and what did we see about the way he related to the Israelites? They rebelled against his authority, his lordship, in the way that they wandered from him and turned their back on him. And what can we learn thematically? How does Paul use this idea in other books that he wrote? And I think perhaps the clearest parallel is Ephesians 5, where where the headship that wives willingly submit to in their husbands parallels the authority and headship that Christ exercises. Not just over the church, but over all things. So you can look in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 and 2 to see this kind of principle, that, that it's not just that Jesus Christ is the source of all things from whom all blessings flow, he is the one with sovereign authority over all things. He is the one who is going to bring all things to account. So you get the immediate context, you get thematic parallels. I think the best interpretation would see headship here as including some sense of authority. And that better explains what Paul then goes on to say about God the Father being the head of Christ. If you've been in a church for a little while, you know there are lots of different ways that the Bible refers to Jesus. And Christ, or Messiah, is a title that specifically is thinking about his humanity. He's not here referring to Jesus' eternal sonship. Nothing in Jesus as a divine person of God ever changes. The church has been very clear on that. Since 325 AD, when we had the Nicene Creed. If you know anything about that creed, you know that the big idea that was right at the heart of it is a word homo which means same substance. So when you're looking at the nature of the Godhead, the Son is the same nature as the Father and is co-equal with him. There's, There's no division. There is no separation in terms of their nature or their character or their attributes. They are three persons that share the same substance. But to save us, the Son in his humanity willingly submitted himself to the authority of his Father. And we're going to see something of that if you flick over to chapter 15. Because Paul is going to teach us something of the climax of that economy of salvation. We... think of the humiliation that Jesus willingly endured as he came into our world, leaving the glories of heaven, stepping into our frail humanity, suffering upon the cross, dying, being raised to life. And at the end of that great work of redemption, we pick up in verse 24, then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Drop down to verse 28, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Paul's saying that in his incarnation, Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to his Father in the economy of our salvation. That didn't make him inferior in his divinity, in his nature as God. That has always remained the same. But he willingly subjected himself to his Father for our salvation. That's about as much as I can say without being sure what I'm going to say next. Because it is a mystery. And there are things involved in the nature of the Trinity and the work of the Son to secure our salvation, which we cannot fully fathom. But I think that much is not only clear, but necessary for us to be theologically clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is unchangeably divine and of the same divine substance as the Father. Which helps us see, actually, for all the mystery, how this analogy tells us something of the equality between men and women. You might be thinking, what has that got to do with men and women? But the headship in view here includes authority that doesn't undermine value And dignity. That's what we've seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, a wife, Paul is saying, is no more inferior to her husband than Christ is inferior to the Father. Jesus himself is showing us here that that authority structures are patterned after his godly, loving example of faithful, sacrificial submission. And that brings us to. Another question, I've switched between talking about men and husbands and wives and women, which is it that Paul's referring to. Um, as a church, we've recently gone through a, a long process of thinking carefully about the roles of men and women, and it's fresh in some of our minds that in Greek, it's the same word, anthropos for man or husband, and it's the same word, gynaikos, for wife or woman, which means in any given passage, we need to understand from the context which the author intended. Now, as hard as this might sound, I think Paul does refer to both throughout this passage. And I want to show you that. There are a number of times when he's clearly referring to all men and women, whatever your marital status. So verse three, we are told that the head of every man is Christ. That is true for every single person in this room. He's particularly writing to men at this point, and that is true of you, whether you're married or single. Similarly, in verse 4, every man dishonors Christ, their head, if they pray or prophesy with their head covered. So, verse 7, no man should cover his head. That's all men. But, nowhere in the Bible are we taught that every man is head over every woman. So, in your translation, you've probably got in verse 3, the head of the wife is her husband, or there might be a footnote that says that, as well. So, so Paul seems to be moving, he's interchanging between talking about uh, men and husbands and women and wives. And that makes all of this a little bit more tricky as well. But with all of that said, what is it that Paul is saying to men and women about their differences in the way that we worship God? That's the key thing. And Paul's key point is our differences are to be lived out in the way we worship, not to be hidden, they're not to be ignored. They're not to be embarrassed or ashamed about. They're to be lived out in the way that we worship. So verse 4, we're going to see that this idea of Christian worship that is embracing all people, is revolutionary for men and women. Verse 4, Paul commands men not to cover their head when they prayed or prophesied. And all of us are here thinking, I've never done that, what's the big deal? When Paul wrote this... Every Jewish man and every Roman man went to temple with their heads covered. This is revolutionary for the men of the church to be thinking that they needed now to remove this head covering. And the same is true for women too. Worship is completely different in the Christian church because previously women had gathered for worship in a separate place. So in the temple, you'd have had the court of women. By the time you get to a synagogue, there would have been a separate area for women. There's always been an aspect of segregation. Now, Paul says the gospel's removed all of those barriers and women worship with men in exactly the same space and not just that, but, verse five, they are to be worshiping with, as in praying and prophesying, we'll get to prophecy in chapter 12, with men too. So the question isn't, Women need to be doing something different somewhere else. The question is, women are folded into the worship just as much as men, but in the way that they are actively participating in worship, you need to live out the differences of being a man or a woman made in the image of God. The problem in Corinth is that some of those women weren't doing that. Paul doesn't actually tell us very explicitly what it is that these women were doing instead. So it's a little hard to be uh, dogmatic and say this is the specific problem. But when you look at the instructions that he gives, I think we can draw some fair conclusions. Apparently, in Paul's day, if you were a married woman, you would show your marital status by wearing something on your head. We'll get to that in just a minute. And that would happen wherever you were if you were out in public. But there was a movement that was picking up steam in the Roman Republic where women wanted to be free and independent, not in their ability to think for themselves and make decisions for themselves. I mean, they wanted to be free free from their husbands, free from the constraints of marriage. And one of the ways that they would visibly show that was they would walk in public without this covering or hair upon their head. So to be really specific about this so we don't miss the point, basically they're walking around saying, I might legally be married, but I want to live as though I'm not, and I'm free and available. That's what Paul is saying in verse 6. That's why this is so serious. And and it makes it a little bit hard for us to think of um, a modern equivalent because really our wedding ring is perhaps the only parallel that we have. So the equivalent would be for a woman to walk around having removed her ring, but not because she's lost it, because she's chosen to say to anybody who would look, I might legally be married, but I'm up for anything. And I'm not going to keep to my wedding vows because I'm free. See how serious this is? So the the wedding ring parallel perhaps doesn't work as strongly because it's not so visible. But all of that helps us to see that we're talking about something that is seen here in some way. And that's the focus that Paul is making. But we don't want to miss the fact that there is a heart issue at work here that is then lived out in the wearing or removal of whatever the garment may be. Beneath this issue of head coverings and everything else is a heart struggle that we can relate to as well. Because we know as husbands and wives that it is all too easy for us not to speak graciously and lovingly of our spouse when we are with them or with other people. It's easy, I think, to focus just on the physical, and it's right that we should because that's the key issue in Corinth, but don't miss the deeper problem, which is of our heart struggle that is then manifested by wearing or not wearing certain things. That's what Paul is worried about here. There's this culture in Corinth where some people were despising Their headship that God had appointed, and Paul could see that creeping into the church, and this horrible possibility that Christian women in the church in Corinth would bring dishonor upon themselves, and upon their husbands, and upon the Lord. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to recognize headship in creation and equality in redemption. So if you look in verses 8 and 9, God deliberately created Adam and Eve in ways that established principles of headship. Verse 8, Adam was created first before Eve was created from him. Verse 9, Eve was created as the helper Adam needed to live out the creation mandate that God then gave to Adam and to Eve. And, And Paul's point here is that God's patterns in creation still affect us today. But that's not the end of the story. And Paul is really clear about that. Before we get overly focused on on headship in creation, he reminds us there's complete equality in life and redemption. So you look at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So what Paul wants us to remember is, yes, Adam came first and Eve came from Adam, but every single man ever since has been born of a woman. And in the Lord, meaning spiritually speaking, we are interdependent upon one another in that kind of body language that Paul loves to use as we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him as a church family. So the equality of salvation doesn't override the headship of creation. They sit side by side. There's no conflict there. We're to embrace the differences of men and women, and we are to see all of the privileges of serving as men and women in our church family together in ways that show the equality in redemption, which is why Paul says, verse 10, that women are to have a sign of authority over her head while she prays and prophesies. He's combining those two realities. Reality of creation, headship. Reality of redemption, equality. And in case all of that wasn't hard enough, (laughs) women are to do all of that because of the angels. And if anybody tells you they know definitively what that means, please send them my way, because I would love to know as well. Um, I think there are two possible ways to faithfully understand that text. When John the Baptist, in Luke 7, first saw Jesus, he wasn't sure who Jesus was. And he sent some people to go and listen to Jesus and ask some questions. And those human people, friends of John the Baptist, were messengers. The Greek word is angelus, the very same word that Paul uses here. So it is possible that when Paul says, women, you need to do this because of the messengers, that he is aware that they are a brand new faith in the Roman Empire, and the Roman officials hated any form of disruption and social upheaval, and may well have sent scouts, messengers, angelus, into those Christian gatherings to see whether what, in this case, the women were doing was going to be a threat and a danger to the Roman Empire. That's entirely possible. It is equally possible that Paul is referring to heavenly angels. And he is reminding us of their existence, of their purpose in worshipping God, of the fact that they exist to bring worship to God. And we know from Paul and from Peter that angels learn from the church. So in a very real sense, Paul may well be reminding us, and I wonder whether this thought has ever even crossed your mind, that as we gather to worship, angels look on to see what the gospel is all about. That is a spiritual reality that we know from the rest of the Bible, and Paul may well be referring to that here. Personally, I think I'd lean in that direction, but either way, we need to recognize headship in creation and equality in redemption. Thirdly and finally, and then we'll get to the specifics, we need to learn from the very nature of things. The differences between men and women, they're not only drawn out of redemption and creation, they are also to a degree Self-evident. You, you just know it. It's like a gut feel. I know, I know something. That's what Paul is saying in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. God has given us some sense of an instinct about the differences between men and women. But... <laughs> doesn't mean there aren't exceptions. Think of the Nazarites. A God-given role where one of the vows that you would take if you served as a Nazarite, as a man or a woman, is that you wouldn't cut your hair. Which means if you were serving as a man, as a Nazarite, your long hair wouldn't be a disgrace before the Lord. For that was his appointed gift. So, We have to be really careful to be not too dogmatic in all of these things. But as a general rule, what Paul is saying is that our instinct tells us whether something is right or wrong or not. All the way back in ancient Corinth and today, and in all of the other cultures that have existed between, most cultures have a relative difference between the length of hair of a man or a woman. Now, biblically, we know, sorry, biblically, we know. That's because the distinction isn't a social construct. The differences between men and women are part of our physiology and our makeup and the way that we view each other in society because that's the way that God has made us. But in Paul's day, with the exception of the Nazarites, if a man was to grow long hair, he was intentionally blurring the distinction of his masculinity he may well have been holding himself out as a homosexual. But he was at the very least shunning the distinctive of how he appeared as a man made in the image of God. And Paul tells us that brought him disgrace. And he says the same principle applies to women. Uh, A woman's long hair was considered to be Her glory, her long hair was was a reflection, a revelation of the glory of her being as a woman made in the image of God. Which brings us to the trickiness of verse 15b. For long hair is given to her as a covering. So here's the obvious question. What is it that the women needed to do with their hair or wear in worship in Corinth? Did they need to have long hair or have long hair that was held up in a certain way or did they need to wear a covering over their hair? And it's trickier than you might at first think. If you go back to verse six, it seems like the woman's hair and the covering are two separate things. So verse six, for if a woman does not cover her head, I would assume with a covering, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair shaved, meaning that she's still got the hair, then she should cover her head. I would read those verses and think they're separate things. Then you get to verse 15. Long hair is given to her as a covering, as the, the Greek is anti. It means for or in the place of. So is the hair the covering or does the hair need a covering? I honestly don't know. I would lean towards either the long hair needs to be put up in some way, or there needs to be a covering over it. But I'm not going to die on that hill. And more importantly, clearly Paul knew, the Corinthians knew exactly what he was talking about, even if we're not entirely sure. Because verse 16, he tells them, if you're unsure about it, go ask All the other churches, because we have no other practice. So, what should we do today? I think we need to apply this principle in a way that our culture understands. Please listen really carefully to why. That is not a cop out. That is not me looking at the Bible thinking, crumbs, if we asked all of the ladies in our church to wear head coverings to church, most of them would stop coming and we would really stick out and we don't want to do that. So let's think of something else instead. That's a cop-out. And if I or any of the church leaders do that, you should speak to us as good Bereans. But I think God's word here is calling us to a principle that we need to apply in our culture in a way that it's understood. And all of us do that all the time. Before you think I'm just fudging it on this issue, all of us do this all the time. Here's an example. There are five specific commands in the Bible to greet one another with a holy kiss. What are we going to do with that? Well, at one end of the spectrum, you could say that was just cultural and we're going to ignore it because that's not what we do anymore. But in saying that, basically saying there are big sections of the Bible that are just not relevant to us anymore today. And that's not what the Bible teaches. At the opposite end of the spectrum, we could ask our welcoming team to kiss everybody on the way in but we all know that wouldn't be wise or helpful. So what do we do? All of us, what do we do? We look at the principle of what is written in all those commands, and we think, how do I live out that principle today? What's the principle? Show the love and the grace of God and the warmth of Christian spirit as you welcome people, especially into a gathered worship service. So what do we all do? Apart from during a pandemic when nobody could touch anybody. Most of us do some version of a handshake or a hug, right? That's what we do. That's not because we're sinning. It's not because we just don't have the courage to be really faithful Bible Christians and go around kissing everybody. It's because we've taken that principle and we've rightly applied it in our context to preserve the integrity of the gospel. So, what does that look like Here. When we gather to worship, we have seen all the way through this evening, we do so as the men and women that God has made us to be. We do that without any embarrassment. We do that without any kind of cultural pressure forcing us to think that we should do something differently. We don't dismiss our differences, but neither do we elevate them to a sinful level. That means we've got division in what men and women can do where the Bible doesn't call those differences necessary. So what does that mean about women's hair, or head coverings. I don't think our culture understands head coverings as a way of showing submission in our culture anymore. That's not, I don't think, how we demonstrate headship or or willing submission, but, but that doesn't mean that we just dismiss this whole section as cultural. And as we close, I think Andrew Wilson is the most helpful person that I've read who explains what kind of decisions we need to be thinking about. This is what he says. In some parts of the world, the answer to, should I wear a head covering or not, the answer would look very similar to that in Roman Corinth. Women would cover their heads and men would not. Now, if you've spent most of your time living in the UK, that might sound quite strange to you. But when you think about the millions of Christians living in very different cultures... This is just super simple for our brothers and sisters in those contexts. And then Wilson goes on. In much of the West today, it might look quite different. Men might have long hair, but they wouldn't pray and prophesy in mascara and lipstick. Women needn't look as if they've walked out of Pride and Prejudice, but it shouldn't look like they've walked off the set of Love Island either. That's the kind of paradigm that we need to have in our mind. How do we show to a watching world that we are thankful that God has made us as the men and women that he has made us? How do we do so in a way that declares that those things are good? And as we do so, we rejoice to worship together, knowing that God has made us men and women in his image together. And has redeemed us together through the blood of his son.